Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. So pop superstar Britney Spears made a headline again recently when she announced that she was no longer a believer in God, that she is now an atheist. It, uh, according to an article in the Christian Post, Spears' revelation that she's no longer a believer in God uh, can be heard in a profanity-laced audio recording posted on Instagram after 60 Minutes Australia interviewed her former husband, Kevin Federline, and their son, Jaden. In the recording, Spears accuses her sons of being hateful, undermining her behavior, and having secretly loved looking at me as if something was wrong with me. In the recording, uh, in which Spears claimed that if God really exist, existed, she wouldn't have suffered the loss of her autonomy for making her own decisions for 13 years, she said, God would not have allowed that to happen to me if God existed. I don't believe in God anymore because of the way my children and my family have treated me. Now, the singer's uh, newfound atheism runs counter to the faith she previously professed when she said that it was God who had gotten her through those 13 years of distress. Yeah, it's easy to dismiss Spears' declaration as the ranting of an unstable person, but if we're honest, we might just see something of ourselves in her bitterness toward God. Isn't it true that when things don't go our way, many of us have a tendency to blame God? Even if the mess is of our own making, we say things like, well, if God really loved me, he wouldn't have let that happen to me. And we, we mistrust God's way of operating as if God's MO is always to make life miserable for us. You know that phrase, MO? I'm going to use it frequently this morning. Modus operandi, a means of operating. Uh, you often hear it in police crime dramas, right? As in one show that Diane and I recently watched where somebody was going around shooting people dead with a shotgun and then pinning a dollar bill to their shirt. It was kind of his signature. So the police saw it once and they thought, well, that's weird. They saw it a second time. They thought, oh, this must be the same killer. They saw it the third time and now they're saying this is his M.O., right? It's got his fingerprints all over it. Well, when we think about God and his MO, many of us mistrust his MO, his way of operating, as if his MO is to make life miserable for us. When my life is a train wreck because of what I or others have done, I, seek, I look at the scene of the crime and I think to myself, well, this has God's fingerprints all over it. It's just like God to do this kind of thing to me. And then we punish God by saying, well, I'm going to stop believing in God now. Now I'm an atheist, or now I'm going to stop going to church, as if, you know, that makes any sense? How does it make sense that if, if God doesn't make sense, you're going to punish him? 
If, if God doesn't exist, rather, you're, you're somehow going to punish him? How can you punish him if he doesn't exist? If God doesn't exist, why would you think your life ought to make sense and turn out right? If uh, God doesn't exist, then what happens to you is just random chance, so why should you expect a just outcome? And so, to the little Britney Spears inside of all of us, I would say, look, God's MO is not to make your, your life miserable, to, to mess up your life and turn everyone and everything against you. God's MO is not to wreak havoc on your life. Some of that we bring on ourselves by our own bad choices. Some of that is brought down on us by others who make evil choices. But don't look for his fingerprints on the nightmare your life has become. It's important for us today to be reminded that God's MO is always to redeem, to restore, and to save those who trust in him. You'll find God's fingerprints in all those places where that song we're going to sing in a little while, all those places where graves turn into gardens, where beauty comes from ashes and where mourning turns to dancing, that's God's MO. And there's no better place to illustrate that perhaps than the story of the first Passover. We're beginning today a new series uh, that looks at four of the major feasts of Israel. Perhaps you've had a Jewish acquaintance who celebrated different holy days than you do. So in the springtime, while you're celebrating Easter, they're celebrating Passover. Usually about this time of year, they'll be observing Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. A little bit later in October, you might find that they build a structure in their backyard out of wood and fabric in observance of the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, we're going to take a look at four of the major feasts of Israel because they're part of our heritage too. Not only did Jesus and his disciples celebrate these feasts, but each of these holidays has important connections to our lives as believers in Jesus Christ, and each of them has something to teach us about the character of our God. So today I'm going to teach about Passover. You may remember back in March of 2021, uh, David Brickner, the president of Jews for Jesus, was here and he did a Christ in the Passover uh, celebration for us in which he looked at the traditional Jewish Passover meal and all the symbolism in it that points to Jesus as the Messiah. Well, I'm not going to take that approach today. Instead, I'm going to be looking at Passover from the standpoint of the observance of the very first Passover as discussed in Exodus chapter 12. Next week, Pastor Ken is going to teach about the Feast of Pentecost. Two weeks from today, October 2nd, you'll want to be sure to be here when David Brickner is going to be back to talk about Christ and the Feast of Tabernacles. And he says this is his favorite presentation of all, uh, especially because of the way the Feast of Tabernacles points ahead to the second coming of Christ. So you want to be here for that. And then the following week uh, of the series, I'll conclude the series with a message on the Day of Atonement. So today we're going to Exodus chapter 12 and a discussion of the very first of Israel's feasts, the Feast of Passover. And my purpose to take you, in taking you into this text today is to show you from it what kind of God we really have. Not one whose MO is to mess up your life and, and wreak havoc and ruin your life when things aren't going your way. Rather, the consistent picture we have of God throughout the scripture and most especially in the story of the first Passover, is of a God who is bent on healing, restoring, redeeming, and saving. Saving us from the evil that others might inflict upon us, but also saving us from the mess we make of our own lives. So you may remember that we just finished 
a series uh, in uh, Genesis we called For Good. It was about the life of Joseph, and we ended that series last week in Genesis chapter 50, where the people of Israel had settled into uh, Egypt, and uh, Jacob had, had died, and his sons were carrying on. And, uh, and so in the turn of a page, from the end of Genesis chapter 50 to Exodus chapter 1, 400 years go by like that. So that when you get to the book of Exodus, the people of Israel have not only settled into the land of Egypt, but they have begun to prosper and, and multiply such that their numbers become so huge they become a concern to the Pharaoh. A Pharaoh who has replaced the Pharaoh who knew Joseph, a new Pharaoh who doesn't know anything about Joseph and doesn't appreciate uh, the role of the Hebrew people. And so he sees this, this huge immigrant population in their midst, and he says, something's got to be done about this. We've got to hold these people down or they're going to take over. And so he decides to enslave the whole lot of them. And so for 400 years, the people of Israel, the Hebrews, living in Egypt, are made slaves to their Egyptian overlords until God raises up Moses. And he sends Moses to Pharaoh with the message, let my people go. But Pharaoh won't do it. He hardens his heart. And so God sends plagues one after the other uh, to, uh, to tell Pharaoh, you know, look, uh, I'm in charge here, not you. And so there is a plague of, of the Nile turning into blood. And then come frogs, and then come gnats, and then come flies, and then comes a plague on livestock, and then boils on people, and hail falls from the sky, and, and locusts eat up whatever is left, and then darkness comes over the land for a, a period of time. And with each of the nine plagues that have happened so far, uh, Pharaoh hardens his heart, and he will not let God's people go. Until you come to chapter 11, where Pharaoh is still hard in his heart, and God sends Moses one more time, and he says, uh, Pharaoh, there's one more plague coming, and this is the one where you'll finally relent and let my people go. All the firstborn males of Egypt are going to die. And then in Exodus chapter 12, and that's where we're looking today, Exodus chapter 12, God tells the people of Israel to get ready that they're about to be set free. And before they are set free, they're going to celebrate one last meal in Egypt together. It's going to be God's Passover feast. So let's look together at the story of the first Passover and what it has to teach us about what our God is really like. And we're gonna look for God's fingerprints, not on a crime scene, if you will, but on this story of deliverance and redemption, which is so descriptive of our God's MO. Beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Already we're being given a glimpse into God's MO. Glimpse number one, it's just like our God to give us a new beginning, isn't it? It's just like God to give us a new beginning. For 400 years, Israel had been forced to operate under the calendar of their Egyptian overlords, but now God is saying, I'm doing something new, something so spectacular that from now on, I want you to throw out the old calendar and start the year with this month because it signals the new beginning I'm giving to you. I'm giving to you in the month of Abib. That was the month of the calendar in which they found themselves at that moment. 
And so God says, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. So on the 10th of Abib, they were to go and find a lamb, either get it out of their flock or herd, or go shopping for one if they didn't have flocks and herds. And they were to bring it home. Verse five says, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Now there are a few important things to note here. First of all, it was to be a year old male without blemish. The feast of the Lord requires that you present the best that you have to offer, not some scrawny, sickly little lamb, but one without any defects. And so you pick out this lamb and you bring it home for four days. Now some say that you bring it home for four days because that gives you a good opportunity to inspect that lamb to make sure it really is without any blemishes or defects. Others say, well, no, maybe the four days have to do with their years in captivity. They're to keep it one day for each hundred years that they've been in captivity, four days, 400 years, as a symbol of that. And others say, well, no, maybe they're to bring the lamb home because four days is just long enough for the family to start getting attached to the lamb. You bring that lamb home and, and it's living with you, you know, at your house, this cute little lamb without blemish or defect, and, you, and as four days go by, you're starting to really get attached to that lamb. It's starting to become almost like the family pet, which means that the next thing that happens is going to feel all the more costly because in verse 6, uh, they're instructed, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. So you get it on the 10th, you keep it until the 14th, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So before the sun sets on the 14th of Abib, every family was to slay their little lamb, their precious lamb. Uh, and can you imagine what that would have been like? On the 14th day, just at twilight, as the sun is beginning to set, all over Egypt, maybe 100,000 houses or more are performing this ritual. 100,000 lambs are being sacrificed at the very same time. Can you imagine the bleeding of all those little lambs and maybe the, the wailing of, of kids who are, who are watching their precious little lamb be slaughtered? It says further that then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. Now later in the chapter, they're instructed to catch the blood of the lamb in a bowl and then take hyssop branches and dip them in the blood and, and use that as kind of a brush to put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the home. Now why they're to do that, we'll see in a few more verses, but first the rest of the instructions. Verse eight says, they shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire, so roasted lamb is on the menu for this dinner that night. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. So three items on the menu the roasted lamb that they have just slain, and it's going to be served with unleavened bread, you know, with matzah, that, that flat bread that looks kind of like a saltine cracker. This is sometimes called the bread of haste because it's what you would eat when you didn't have time to make uh, bread where you let the dough rise. Uh, later, leaven would be regarded as a symbol of pride and sin, you know, kind of what puffs you up, the way leaven makes, makes a lump of dough rise 
And all traces of leaven would need to be removed from the household in preparation for the Passover meal. And then the seven days following Passover, that's all the bread that you consume, was unleavened bread. It would be called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The second of Israel's feasts would be this week-long feast that immediately followed the Passover. And it would also remind them of the early days of the Exodus when they were on the run from Pharaoh and, and didn't have time to let the dough rise before they baked it. So you have the roasted lamb, you have the unleavened bread, and then you have bitter herbs. Uh, they were the third thing on the menu, perhaps to remind them of the bitterness of sin, but probably more likely a way of symbolizing the bitterness of their enslavement in Egypt for all those years. But they won't be slaves for long because God is about to set them free. And that's why he gives the remaining instructions for dinner. In verse 11, it says, In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened. And usually when it says your belt is fastened, it means that you've taken the long robes of your garment and you've tucked them into your belt and have tightened your belt so that your legs are free to move. That's normally the way you would dress when you traveled. And you're to have uh, sandals on your feet. Well, you didn't normally come to the table with sandals on. Uh, sandals were for outside the house. And the staff in your hand. In other words, uh, you're, you're, you're dressed to travel now because you're soon going to leave Egypt. And you shall eat it in haste. So dress like you're ready for a journey and you eat your food quickly. This isn't like some Italian feast of seven fishes where you spend all night long eating. This is an eat and run kind of affair. Uh, you've got to be ready to go because tonight is the night. You're about to be set free. It is the Lord's Passover, it says at the end of verse 11. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment, declares the Lord. I am the Lord. Here we get a second glimpse into God's MO. It's just like our God to give us a new beginning. And secondly, it's just like God to defeat the powers of darkness. It's just like God to defeat the powers of darkness. You see, God isn't merely content to show Pharaoh who's boss. This 10th plague is a way of demonstrating that all the gods of Egypt are nothing compared to him. In fact, it could be argued that all the plagues had been about that. When God turned the Nile to blood, he was attacking the, the worship of Knum, the, the god of the river. The plague of frogs was an attack on Hecht, the frog-headed goddess of resurrection. Lice would have interrupted all their sacrifices to their gods, rendering them unclean. Swarms of flies showed the impotence of Beelzebub, the prince of the air, who was often pictured with flies buzzing about his head. Um, livestock suffered disease as a way of punishing Apis, the, the sacred bull. Boils were an affront to Imhotep, the god of medicine. Hailstones showed the weakness of Newt, the sky goddess. Locusts opposed Nepri, the god of grain. Darkness was an attack on Ra, the sun god. But the death of the firstborn of Egypt attacked all the gods, and most especially Ammon, the, the head of all their gods. Ammon was usually depicted in human form, but the ram was his animal. Now think about this. At, at twilight on Abib 14, when the moon was full and Ammon's power was supposed to be at its height, 
Thousands upon thousands of lambs were sacrificed at the same time, a lamb for every Hebrew household, and it showed that the ram god had no power at all. The blood of the lamb was spilt by each Hebrew household and the blood applied to the doorposts and the lintel of their home. Why? Verse 13 says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And here we get two more glimpses into our God's MO. It's just like our God to defeat the powers of darkness. And thirdly, it's just like God to provide a substitute. It's just like God to provide a substitute that turns wrath away. That night at midnight, the angel of the Lord would pass through all of Egypt, taking the life of every firstborn male, whether man or beast, from the household of Pharaoh right on down to the prisoner in the dungeon. Imagine that, the, the firstborn male in Pharaoh's household. That means the heir to the throne of Egypt was about to die that night. But wherever the lamb had been slain, wherever the blood had been applied, no one would die. The lamb died so that no one's son would have to. An innocent lamb's life was given to divert the wrath of God. You know, this isn't the first time in Scripture that God has done something like this, is it? Think back to our series in Abraham earlier this year in Genesis 22, when God asked Abraham to take his son, his only son Isaac, and offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham, in obedience to God, took Isaac up to Moriah and built an altar there. And as they're going to the place of sacrifice, Isaac says to him, Dad, here's the fire and here's the wood, but where's the, the, the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham in faith says to him on that occasion, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. He proceeds to lay his son Isaac on the altar just as God had called him to do. He raises his hand to take his son's life when the angel of the Lord comes to Abraham and says, don't, stop. You don't, you don't have to do this. Now that I know that I have your heart, Abraham, I know that you value me even above your dearly loved son. And then at that moment, Abraham looks up and he sees what? A ram caught in the thicket by its horns. God indeed had provided the substitute to offer in Isaac's place. Time and time again in scripture, we see God at work this way, redeeming someone by providing another to be slain in their place. It's just like God to provide a substitute that way. And fourthly, it's just like God to ask us to trust him in this. It's just like God to ask us to trust him. I mean, what guarantee did the Hebrews have that any of this would work? You know, slay a lamb and then mess up my house by putting blood on the doorposts and the lintel? And then eat a quick meal with my sandals on and my staff in my hand? How's any of that going to save my son? All they could do was trust in what God had said. And trust him they did. Because it tells us in verse 28 that the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. I guess you could say they were saved by faith, right? 
Because it goes on to say that at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Can you imagine the weeping and the wailing and the mourning that must have risen up across the land of Egypt that night? Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night. And Pharaoh said to them, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. And here again, we get a a glimpse of God's MO, how he does things. It's just like God to set us free from bondage. It's just like God to set us free from bondage. From this moment, Israel's experience as a free people would begin. No longer slaves to Egypt, they would be free to go and serve the Lord in the land he had long ago promised to give them. Which leads then to glimpse number six into God's MO. And that is that it's just like God to keep his promises. It's just like God to keep his promises. Do you realize that it was 600 years before this night that God had promised to Abraham that his descendants would become a mighty nation and that God would give the land of Canaan to those descendants of Abraham one day. But first, God told him, way back in Genesis 15, 600 years before this night, God told Abraham that before they would possess the land, those people were going to, to be enslaved. They were gonna be sojourners and slaves in a foreign land where they would be afflicted for 400 years. God told him in advance that all this was going to happen. For 400 years, you're gonna be slaves. And then God promises in Genesis 15, 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Well, it was in Egypt that Abraham's descendants, a clan of 70, became a nation, 600,000 men strong, plus women and children. And this was the night when God came through on his promise to judge their oppressors and bring them out with great possessions. This is our God's MO. He is not some cosmic killjoy who's out to make life miserable for us. He's not an ogre in the sky who wrecks havoc on our lives. No, the Passover shows us that God's MO is always to save. Where you see deliverance and redemption, that's where you'll find his fingerprints. It's just like our God to give us a new beginning. It's just like him to defeat the powers of darkness arrayed against us. It's just like him to provide a substitute that saves us from judgment. It's just like him to ask us to walk by faith in him. It's just like him to set us free from bondage, to always keep his promises. That's the kind of God we have. And in case you're wondering, The scriptures want us to know that what God did for Israel in the first Passover was no fluke. He's done it again for us in the person of Jesus. What God once did for Israel, he has done for us all in Christ. For as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 5, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. What the Passover lamb was to Hebrew slaves in Egypt, Jesus is to us. Pastor Tim Keller talks about how when he was younger, he always had a hard time with the Old Testament and he never could quite figure out how the Old Testament and New Testament went together. He, he saw you know, kind of discontinuity between them. He just didn't quite get it until he said he heard a lecture from a Bible scholar by the name of Dr. Alex Motyer. 
And Dr. Motyer was addressing this very question and he said to his students, I want you to imagine what would be the testimony of people in Moses' day who had just experienced the Exodus? What would they say about that? Well, they might say something like this. We were in a foreign land in bondage under the sentence of death But our mediator, the one who stands between us and God, came to us with the promise of deliverance. We trusted in the promises of God, took shelter under the blood of the lamb, and he led us out. And now we are on our way to the promised land. Dr. Motyer said, now think about it. A believer in Jesus today could say virtually the exact same thing, except that the mediator that they're talking about is not Moses, but Jesus. Think about it. We were in a foreign land, in bondage, under the sentence of death, but our mediator, the one who stands between us and God, came to us with the promise of deliverance. We trusted in the promises of God, took shelter under the blood of the lamb, and he led us out, and now we are on our way to the promised land. Look at the gospel, and you'll see the same MO as you see in the Passover and the Exodus. You see God's fingerprints over both historical events. You see the same MO in it all. It's just like our God, isn't it, to provide a substitute that saves us from judgment? When Israel sacrificed their lambs at first Passover, it meant that the firstborn sons of Israel would be saved. And because Jesus, our Passover, has been sacrificed, that we are saved from the judgment of God. Jesus gave his life for us. As John the Baptist put it one day, looking at Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter put it in one of his epistles. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus himself said that I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many, to give my life in your place. In August of 1967, a Northwest Airlines plane went down as it was taking off from Detroit Airport, and 155 people were killed that day. They found one survivor, a little girl named Cecilia, four years old. But they originally thought this couldn't have been a passenger on the plane. All the passengers on the plane had died. Maybe this little girl was in a a car that the plane had come down on when it descended. But they did a little more digging and they found, no, her name was on the passenger list. Cecilia was there. And upon further investigation, they determined that what must have happened was that Cecilia's mother, Pauline, who did die in the accident, had taken off her seatbelt even as the plane was falling from the sky. She got down on her knees in front of her daughter and hovered over her and sheltered her with her own body and would not let her go. And because of that, Pauline died, but Cecilia lived. That mother gave her life for her child. Such is the love of our Savior for us, that he would leave heaven and lower himself to us and cover us with the sacrifice of his own body and blood to save us. It's just like our God to provide a substitute that saves us from judgment. It's just like our God to ask us to trust him in this, right? I mean, how how do we avail ourselves of, of that salvation provided in Christ? Paul says, In Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you were saved, how? Through faith. 
through believing in Jesus, that sacrifice that has been provided. Jesus himself said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Paul said to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. You've got to put your faith in the sacrifice that God has provided. Have you trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? And a lot of people today would say, oh yeah, I trust in Jesus. You know, I don't make a big deal about it because it's a very personal and private decision, you know. And yeah, that might be a good start, but... You know it wasn't sufficient for the people of Israel to believe in their hearts that if they sacrificed a lamb that God would pass over their house? They had to actually apply the blood to the doorposts and lintel as a demonstration of their faith. It was by going public with their trust that the angel of death passed over their house and so also we are called upon to show that we trust in Jesus in the blood of Christ to save us. In Romans 10, 9, the Apostle Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And in the New Testament, the preferred way of making that confession of faith was in the waters of baptism. In the very first day of, of the history of the church, Peter's preaching in Jerusalem and people say, what should we do? And he says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The preferred way of, of demonstrating that faith, of essentially putting the blood on the doorpost and lintel in the New Testament was always believer's baptism. And if you've never been baptized as a believer, there's an opportunity for you to follow Jesus in obedience by being baptized, uh, giving profession, a confession of your faith in him. That's gonna take place on October 2nd in the evening. And if you're interested in being part of that, you can sign up on the app today, go to the baptism icon, or, or talk to one of the folks at the information centers and let them know you're interested in being baptized. It's just like our God to provide a substitute that saves us from sin. It's just like our God to ask us to trust him, to profess our faith in him. It's just like our God to deliver us from bondage, isn't it? I mean, just as the Israelites were set free from their slavery in Egypt, so Jesus, our Passover, sets us free from bondage to sin. In Christ, we have died to sin. Sin is no longer our slave master calling the shots in our lives. We are no longer under obligation to sin, but we've been set free. As Jesus himself said, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And as Paul put it, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And there are many here this morning that can bear witness to how Christ has set, it, set us free. Free from bondage to sin, free from bondage to, to old habits and hurts and hang-ups, free from addiction, free from temper, free from our unforgiveness. It's just like our God to provide a substitute that saves us from judgment, to ask us to trust in him, to set us free from Bondage, it's just like our God to deliver us from the powers of darkness arrayed against us. Just as in the Passover, God executed judgment on all the gods of, of Egypt, so in Christ, Jesus has defeated the greatest enemy of all, sin and death. By his death and resurrection, he has set us free from our greatest enemy of all. As the writer of Hebrew puts it, that 
that Jesus did all this that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. In Christ we have the assurance that we will never die, that in him we have eternal life. It's just like our God to provide a substitute that saves us from judgment, just like our God to ask us to trust him, just like our God to deliver us from bondage, just like our God to defeat the powers of darkness arrayed against us. It's just like our God to give us a new start, isn't it? Just as God told Israel, throw away that old calendar and start a new one to signal their new beginning. So when people come to faith in Christ, we tell them, mark it down, mark down the date the month, the day, the year, because this is your spiritual birthday. Jesus himself compared it to being born again. It's having a whole new start with God. Paul put it this way, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. I love what Pastor Eugene Peterson once said. He said, you know, the gospel message says, you don't live in a mechanistic world ruled by necessity. You don't live in a random world ruled by chance. You live in a world ruled by the God of Exodus and Easter. And he will do things in you that neither you nor your friends would have supposed possible. We have a God who delights in giving new beginnings. So, to the little Britney Spears inside of all of us that thinks that God's MO is to wreak havoc in our lives, I would say, if you really want to see God's MO, you need to look at the Passover and then look at Jesus. When you see people being provided a substitute that saves them from judgment, when you see the powers of darkness retreating in defeat, where you see people being set free from chains that bind them, where you see people making a fresh start in life, where you see people walking by, in confidence, in the promises of God, there you will see his handiwork. There you will find his fingerprints. There you will come to know for certain that God's MO is always to save. Let's bow in an attitude of prayer. I don't want to let this moment go without giving someone here an opportunity to make that profession of faith in Christ that we're talking about, you know. Believe in your heart that Jesus did all that for you, great. But God also asked the people of Israel to apply the blood to the doorpost and the lintel. And he asks us to confess him before men. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. It's important that we profess the faith that we have in Christ. And so I want to give you that opportunity right now. Yeah, it starts in the heart. It starts with a heart attitude that says something like this, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I've done things and said things and thought things that deserve your judgment. But I thank you for sending Jesus to be my substitute, to take my sin upon himself and to pay for my sin at the cross. I thank you that you've raised him from the dead, victor over sin and death. And I come now in faith, putting my faith and trust in Jesus alone to be my rescuer from sin and my leader for life. Repenting of my sin, turning to my Savior, I ask, Lord, that you save me.
And now comes the profession part. If, if that's the prayer of your heart this morning, and maybe you're praying that or something like it for the very first time, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? This is kind of, thank you, thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. This is kind of a way of saying, yeah, I'm, I'm going on public record here, that I'm putting my faith and trust in Jesus. Yeah, for all of you who've put your hands up, you can put them down now. I'm gonna ask you to do one more thing before you leave today. We have in each foyer on your way to the parking lot, whichever way you go out, you'll see a great big green banner there that says yes on it. And uh, I'd love for you to go to the banner and there'll be somebody standing there and just say, I said yes uh, to them. And uh, they wanna put in your hands a, a, a booklet that we want you to take with you today, saying yes to a relationship with Jesus. And it talks about what we've been discussing here this morning, but also gives you some steps for beginning your new walk with Christ. So please do stop off at the banner before you leave and tell them I said yes. Jesus said, if you confess me with your mouth, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. Father, we are so grateful for these who have put their faith and trust in you today. We ask, Lord, that you would walk with them, that you would guide them, that you would direct them, that, that they would experience the freedom that we've been talking about, the new start that we've been talking about, the assurance of salvation that we've been talking about. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us in Christ. We praise you today, Lord, for Exodus and Easter, for the Passover lamb that saved Israel, and for Jesus, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We see in each your divine fingerprints, and we're grateful that to this very day, you are turning graves into gardens, you're bringing beauty from ashes and turning mourning into dancing. And we confess today that you are the only one who can, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.